and welcome to the Athlete Development Show podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Craig Harrison, sports scientist, coach, and researcher focused on the developing athlete. Geordie Taylor is a senior strength and conditioning coach at Athletes Authority, a strength and conditioning gym for athletes in Sydney and in Melbourne in Australia. Geordie also heads up media and partnerships at Athletes Authority and hosts their on-air podcast. In this conversation, Geordie takes us inside Athletes Authority's Emerging Athlete Program, a service specifically designed for young athletes. I really enjoyed hearing from Geordie and his no-filter approach to sharing what they do and how they do it. There's plenty of gold in this one, so stay tuned to hear from one of the best. Enjoy. Geordie, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Craig, thank you very much for having me, mate. Uh, we did say off air, we're trying to get this um, sorted for a while now. So I do appreciate uh, you reaching out and your patience and and finally getting into it. And hopefully we have a good stimulating conversation, mate. Where I'd like to start is uh, in doing a little bit of research for the show. I came across one of your articles and you talked about this idea of sawdust moments. Uh, I'm not sure how old it was, but uh, it resonated. And so I'd love if you could just start by sharing what sawdust moments are and how they show up in your world. Yeah, so I've first heard of a similar sort of topic um, around, um, what was the best way to describe this? It was essentially the sword, the idea of the sawdust is it's everything that goes on in your day that you don't pay attention to that can sort of just fall to the side. Um, And it was essentially around how, they were packaging something um, for – I'm trying to get this right so I don't get this wrong. It was about how they made firewood and how firewood would be used for obviously fires and all these sorts of things. And then they would have the offcuts of the firewood, which was the sawdust. And the sawdust would just sit there and then they would um, you know, sweep it away at the end of the day and it would just sort of go, go to the wayside. No one would really think about it. Um, but then one day this guy came in and said, well, what if we found a way to utilize all this waste, all this leftover sawdust – um, and use it for something. And so what he ended up doing with this sawdust was packing it into bricks and creating like fire bricks and basically created a whole new product and a whole new concept and idea. And that sort of idea that we were speaking to in that that little article, that little, little makeshift there, which I believe was on LinkedIn, was more so about the things that go on around us on a day-to-day basis that we may not pay attention to quite often have massive utility or massive value to someone else in a different situation. Um, so it was more so just trying to, I guess, shift a, a bit of perception or a bit of an ideas around that just because, you know, this is my day or this is what I do on a day-to-day basis, whether it be coaching or or in, in the business side of things or whatever it may be, to someone else, that could be really, really, really valuable. So it's sometimes we we may not notice them, but if we can identify that potentially that would be useful to someone else, we, we should try to share that. Um, and that was that whole idea of the sawdust moment. Yeah, I love it. And one of the sections in that article talked about storytelling. And so I'm curious if you could share any examples of sawdust moments in your experience, recent experience, and perhaps through a story, you know, just shine a light on one. A bit of pressure here early off the bat. No. <laughs> um, yeah, the storytelling component is is obviously, it's been around since since the day of dawn. The One of the things my granddad always told me was, was three things, um, have clean shoes, have a nice watch uh, and be able to tell good stories. 
Um, so I've tried to do all three. Uh, the watch, I'm still in the process of getting it actually a nice, nice watch. Um, but I think it is important, right, to be able to tell stories and people relate to stories far better than facts. Stories sell brand uh, is probably a really good way to look at it. You know, you build up a really solid audience when you can tell really good stories because they buy into what you're saying and they can probably see elements of themselves or their situation in that storytelling element. I'm just trying to think of a really good recent one um, that would be would, would obviously relate to the audience. While you're thinking, perhaps we could... Um... Well, you mentioned your granddad. Was he a, a big influence in your upbringing? Yeah, definitely. He was um, very lucky enough to grow around, uh, grow up around uh, both one of my grandparents. Uh, unfortunately, both both my granddads have passed away now, but both of them gave some very good insights. Um, I guess it's one of those things that when you're a kid, you probably don't realize how much they're passing down to you and, until later on down the track uh, and some of the funny sayings and, and things that you remember along the way, but both of them played a very big impact in, in my life. Um, they would take me to sport, um, you know, school events, any of that sort of extracurricular stuff. Um, this particular um, granddad, he would take me to early morning training sessions for school, whether that be basketball um, or track and field or whatever it was. So having people like that around you in your life, you're obviously very fortunate. Um, but again, probably going back to that sawdust moment, right? Like you, you can take those little elements and, and repackage them and, and hopefully pass them on to other people that, you, that you're around and that you deal with and some of the values that you hold on to into your, I guess, your adulthood. What was your childhood like, Jordy? Like I know you're, you're across the ditch there in Sydney now, but is that where you grew up? Did you spend time where you're a city boy or you're out in the country? Yeah, no. So um, I recently moved down to Sydney about three years ago or coming up three years. Prior to that, I was in the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Um, so just about an hour north of Brisbane. Um, and yeah, like, mate, to be fair, pretty standard um, household. Two brothers um, live right near the beach. So uh, very active, um, would get down to the beach as much as I could. My background, I guess, from a sporting context was rugby league. Um, grew up playing rugby league pretty much my whole life. Um, and you know, school sports was a variety of things, but our household was was very much rugby league dominant. Dad coached my brother's team. So I was sort of left to, to fend for myself, I guess, a little bit in that regard, you know, in regards to getting the trainings and things like that, because he was always with with my younger brother. Um, but no, mate, very, very standard household, very middle class would be the best way to probably describe it. Um, and then, yeah, just fell in love with the performance side of things. I think the the cliche, you realize you're not going to be a, a, a professional athlete. So what's the next closest thing? Uh, coaching professional athletes or being involved in that professional athlete space. So when I was, uh, and I quite often refer to this story, when I was about 17, um, just at training, it was for the first proper big rep team that did a big massive preseason for them a couple of weeks away from our first proper trial game. And um, just in a contact session, just got twisted uh, the wrong way. Uh, and heard this massive pop. Luckily enough, it wasn't ACL, but it was a pretty good uh, damage or, or good job. Uh, did, you know, high-grade MCL, dislocated kneecap, and a few other bits and pieces. So that essentially ruled me out of that rep uh, competition for that year. Um, but what I had to do was rehab, and uh, I fell in love with that process of, uh, okay, well, I couldn't play, and I couldn't do these sorts of things, but then Obviously, there was all these other things I could focus on and I wasn't the biggest or the strongest kid. So that was a really big focus that the, the rehab coach, the strength and conditioning coach gave me was to put on a little bit of size. Um, and in that time, I, I really saw some good results. So that sort of probably trickled or started that snowball effect of, okay, this stuff is pretty interesting and can really work. And when I'm not injured, I can still get better at my sport. Um, and then that following year, he actually asked me to run the strength and conditioning for the team. 
And mind you, I didn't really know what I was doing, but he gave me a bit of a program to follow. So whilst I was playing, I was actually doing um, the, the strength conditioning for the team. So that was a pretty cool, um, I guess, thrown in the deep end and, and go for it. Um, but it was a, a really good way to get exposed to um, A, coaching some of my friends, uh, but then obviously B as well, being a part of the program and actually getting how understanding how it feels. I think a lot of the time as coaches, we probably don't do our programs enough or understand how things feel or how the athletes feel as they do the program. So yeah, death by fire early on was probably the best way to describe sort of getting thrown in the deep end. Yeah, I love it. It's always interesting how we come to do what we do. And I often think about athletes in, in some different categories, just just as a way of helping me think clearly. A little while back, I, I put them into uh, the natural, the hustler and the thinker, uh, just as a way of, um, as I said, thinking about how athletes show up. And and the hustler was that type of athlete that just loves to train. They'll come to the gym and train, train the house down and, and sometimes like to spend more time training than, than they would performing. The athletes that show up in your gym, what do they typically bring to the environment? Like, is it, are they all hugely individualized from a um, characteristic point of view or are they, are they a similar breed when it comes to uh, what they bring to the gym because the, I'm assuming that they they come on their own or are you or are the team sending them? Yeah, it, it's a great question. Probably a great way to look at it. Majority of them um, come on their own, which is great because um, it probably comes down to two points. And you would definitely see this in the environments that you've been a part of and probably what you do. You, you've probably got two types of parents that really push the younger athletes at that point in time or encourage the younger athlete, you've got the helicopter parent that will really try to, I guess, be involved in everything and, and direct them into what they believe would be the best thing for them. And then you've got the other kid that will want to do probably the hustler that you're referring to that will want to do absolutely anything they can in their power to be the best. And, and they will seek out, you know, what they believe is the best. And I think they're probably the two types of athletes that we get um, typically in here because it is a, it is a financial investment and, Obviously, most of kids under, say, you know, 17, they're not going to be able to afford something like this, which is, uh, I guess, unfortunate, but the parents can. So whilst we are training the kids, sometimes you're training the kids, but you're selling to the parent and that can be two different things. And that's a bit of a juggling act we get in the private space. I'm sure other people listening to this will probably feel the same same way a little bit at times that you're, you're training the kid and you almost have to develop two relationships versus one when you may have an older athlete that's, you know, um, funding it themselves you you're appeasing the kid and you know the, their needs and their goals and their wants and sometimes the parents may have something slightly different um, which is always fun but that's the the juggling act that we play um, but yeah I think that that probably the, the those three type archetypes that you mentioned there almost hit the nail on the head and I think would would fit for most uh, training environments um, the kids that we get in here we I would really probably put them in that hustler category like you almost have to pull them back a little bit because of how much they've got going on versus, you know, you need to be doing more. You don't often really have to say that to kids. Um, you know, you can imagine what what the the kids' schedules these days are like when they start to get to that 15, 16. And as I mentioned, that's sort of where representative stuff comes in for clubs. Um, if they're a team sport athlete, obviously they've got representative for school. They've got school sport. They've got club sport you know, anything in any extracurricular, like they might be playing touch football or something like that. And all of a sudden they've got 16 sessions a week and they're trying to get their gym in on top of that. Um, you almost become a load management expert versus a, a strength conditioning coach at times. For sure. I think that's something that we all battle with, uh, with the, the busy athlete who tends to shine in a lot of different environments. 
Uh, and so I'm curious, you, you talk about uh, your coaching methodology as one where you're reverse engineering the demands of the sport and then fill the training gaps. Is that the same way that you would approach, as say, a 13-year-old? And I know at your facility you, you've got kids about the age of 13 right through to the professional athlete. Well, how do you approach the 13-year-old differently than you would an older athlete? One of my favorite sayings or, or points that I definitely had written on my wall uh, when I was sort of a bit younger in the industry was kids aren't many adults. So we don't want to treat kids the same way that we we treat adults. And that's um, obviously from a programming standpoint is probably just the tip of the iceberg, but also how we interact with them. Um, so the short answer is no, it's understanding where they are in that developmental stage. You know, are they more in that fundamentals where we are just going through the basics, but there needs to be a really big element of play to that, uh, that individual? Um, are they entering peak height velocity? Have they um, exited peak height velocity? Where do they sit on that continuum there? Because that's obviously going to determine how much load we want to put into these athletes. Um, but essentially, you know, the principles remain principles no matter, no matter who you got and what's in front of you. Yes, we look at the, the athlete in front of us and how I guess the athlete appears to us is we take them through performance testing and that's done by our in-house sports scientist, uh, Adam. Now, not everyone has the luxury of, of having an in-house sports scientist to be able to run their athletes through. I'm very much aware of that. But prior to being here, you know, always start with an assessment. And whilst we look at the physical characteristics as well, the thing that I like the most about that initial assessment is actually just getting to know that 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 kid. Um, because in that conversation is generally the sweet spot where you can understand what's actually going to drive them, what's their motivator. Um, same with the parents. You can really start to get some good insights into them. And I'm big on understanding the person uh, before the athlete. That's something that really resonates with me um, is what's their drivers, what's their athletic demands based on their performance testing measures, where do they sit in that developmental stage? And then, yeah, then we reverse engineer off the back of those probably three key markers. Mm, so I'm curious around first the physical piece, like uh, do you have a specific battery of tests that, that you would put a young athlete through? Like is that something pretty standard or is that based on their sport and and some of their requests as they walk through the door, and then and then getting to know the child, uh, is there a a standardised process? Um, and I, I know that's a bit of a silly question because people don't come in boxes. But how do you do that in the first session? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you the the first part, uh, first piece of that which is the physical. Uh, we have a standardised testing battery that we we do across the board, um, and that is whether an athlete's youth all the way through to pro. It doesn't matter. It's a very similar standard test. While there might be some very slight adjustments, it's pretty standardised. Um, what that involves is um, uh, a lot of the vault performance kit. So when they first come in and look at their human track, so essentially how do they move? Um, and for kids, that's really good. Um, exposure them at least just to see, okay, well, this is some basic movements. Where do you... How competent are you? Where do you fall on that movement scale? And for parents, it's really good to be able to see that the report they get, which is for those that aren't aware of it, a bit of a, a printout, almost a 3D mocap is the setup and they get some key markers on them. And, you know, if you're referring to a parent, you know, they might have patellofemoral pain and they say, you know, they really, their knees get agitated and this and that. And then they, they have, you know, quite horrific knee valgus or, or, um, things like that, you can actually identify that and start to build that relationship and trust with the parent and the athlete. And I think that's part of that that performance testing or that initial consult when you got a parent and an athlete is you're trying to build their trust throughout. The more trust you can gain, the more they start to open up, the more you'll actually get out of that. 
Uh, and that just takes time. And, and obviously there's, as you mentioned there, no two athlete, no two parents are the same. You're going to get some that will want to tell you absolutely everything about their kid. You're going to get some that won't say much at all. And then you got to sort of pry them for the information. Um, you just got to try to find that sweet spot. So we start with the human track. From there, we then go onto the force decks and go through some force place analysis. So depending on the athlete's age, we may look at a IMTP, which is mid-thigh iso pull, to assess what, what strength capacities they actually have. We'll then go through some of our jump testing, so counter-movement jump for a more of an elastic approach, squat jump for a muscular approach, uh, and then a drop jump from a reactivity uh, standpoint. So that's our uh, decks or our force deck analysis. Um, and then from there, we go into some hops and jumps. So our broad jump, our uh, single leg hop and stick, and our triple hop. Um, and then again, depending on the athlete's age, we may look at a Nord board uh, or some force framework as well. So some hip at an ab and potentially some shoulder uh, IR, ER if they are up to that. So it is quite comprehensive in what we do. And it does develop a bit of a, I guess, a bit of a map around, you know, who they are and, and where they are in that, I guess, that physical development stage. The best part about that is all the athletes that enter our program are uh, sign a 12-month training agreement. So they actually stay with us for 12 months. Um, and especially if you're getting an athlete at 13, 14, or 15, it's really cool to be able to uh, historically go back and look at where they, where they were at when they first started. Um, and then if you've got them for four or five years, like some of the athletes that have been here for, they've been here longer than me, you can really see that change in their physical profile over time. And it's it's really cool to see. And the other element to that is we have our rehab um, component to the the facilities as well. And if an athlete unfortunately does get injured, but that's the reality of sport, sometimes that happens. We've got all this historic data there around some benchmarks and markers for return to play that we can get them back to and hopefully stronger than when they uh, got injured as well. So it does serve multi multitude of purposes. Mm, you, you mentioned peak height velocity earlier. Do you have a, do you assess that with the kids that, that come in as well to get us get a bit of a, an idea of the stage of development that they're at? hundred percent. So when they first come in, we, we, we measure uh, the, the child's height, um, ideally the parent's height when they're there. Um, and I, both parents, if they are, if not just one, uh, because the one thing I've noticed over the years, and I think uh, we're all the stickler for it, uh, is we sometimes may throw on a couple extra centimeters on our height. I know I have on my driver's license. So sometimes the uh, data you get from the parents uh, aren't too, isn't too accurate. So we try to get their their height in the facility because we bit of a standardization to it. And again, this is probably the gray and the dirty science, right, of what happens in the in the private space sometimes is you do rely on on a lot of external factors that can come into play. And that's one of them. Um, and then from there, with our performance testing and our, our measurements for our peak height velocity, we do that every five weeks. So the performance testing gets cut into half um, because obviously that's quite an extensive process if we do the whole lot. So we have a testing block A every five weeks and a testing block B. Um, but off the back of that, all our athletes that are under the age of 17 will always get measured uh, as well in that five-week period. So we're consistently getting um, updates in their heights as well. And so what are you seeing around changes in in height versus some of those other metrics that you are measuring? Like, do you get evidence of that sort of adolescent awkwardness piece that we know is, is part of development, but we're not really quite sure what that means just yet? Um, I think there's lots of research that would be super fun to do in that space. But from your point of view, practically on the gym floor, are those sorts of ideas showing up for you? 100%. And I think... You, you. I think the best thing is, and we've all probably been, if we've been a coach, is you, 
you um, have a youth athlete that you're working with and they might go away on a holiday for a couple of weeks and they come back and you go, what did you do overseas? Like all of a sudden you, you look six inches taller and then you go back into the, you know, the prescribed session you may have had or their previous program. And all of a sudden, exactly what you said, they look like baby, um, baby giraffe. They're sliding all over the place. They can't control their body. And um, that is just a prime example of that adolescent awkwardness or, that, that they've probably entered that peak height velocity phase. So what we do is we try to uh, have a, a traffic light system where we identify some of those, those um, I guess, measures before they happen. Um, and the key things we look at is based on a percentage um, cutoff. Um, so it's just a, a green pre-peak height velocity is all green. Um, 80, 85 to 90% starts to flag as orange. So when it flags as orange, all we're looking at is, hey, we're not making any changes. But just keep in mind that there potentially is going to be that that change in in body shape, body structure. What comes with that? As we know, there can be stress and load related injuries. So let's just at least have a conversation with the athlete and the parents, or at least start to be aware of that um, with our training and our programming. And do we need to change anything? Probably not, but let's at least flag it. Then when they start to enter that peak height velocity phase, we will then mark that at as I said, that 90-ish percent mark, give or take, all the way through to post-peak height velocity. And that flags is red. And that's where we need to establish a conversation with the parent, any relevant stakeholders as well, if they are you know, working potentially with uh, youth athletes, clubs, schools, wherever it may be, if there is anyone else you need to sort of flag that with. Um, and then the other thing too, which I think a lot of coaches may not do is they don't talk to the athlete about it. Um, I always go back to that story there on that kid. His name was Bo. He had, I think might've been three or four weeks over in the States. He's a basketballer um, and came back and he was so frustrated with himself that he couldn't do the things he was doing beforehand. Um, he couldn't lift the weights he wanted to. Not that we actually were encouraging that, but we had to regress um, his, his loads or his movements as well. And he was getting really frustrated over the course of a couple of weeks. And probably a bit inexperienced at the time, but I didn't really know the best way to articulate that to him. But upon reflection, all it was this conversation to say, Hey mate, great news is you're growing. I'm stopped. I can't grow anymore, but you're still growing. All that means is that your, your body needs some time to adapt. The great part about that is, is you've put all this hard work in prior. So it's not going to take too long, but we need to give a little bit of time for you to just reset. Let's get some of these good movement patterns back. What are some of the key things we need to work on? And then we can come out of this, you know, bigger, faster, stronger, whatever that may be, or whatever that the, the terminology you want to use for your athletes. Um, and that's probably a big learning, learning reflection for me, that particular athlete and that particular scenario is what I learned or what I took away from it was the conversation and the, 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 the openness to the athlete and to the parents, that's where you really get that buy-in. And then if they can trust you to have those conversations, they will trust you forever. And especially if you're in the private space, you know, athlete retention and things like that's very important you tick some big boxes there as well talk to me a little bit about play you mentioned that that was important uh you know in in part of the the work that you do with young people and and so what is it that play provides to your developing athletes i'm curious uh for a number of reasons but yeah how do you think about play and what do you actually use it for Mm. i think it really depends on the context and the environment that you're in as well um there's a certain amount of elements that you would like to include and there's certain amounts that you obviously can't include. And it, it kind of falls on that funny bandwidth. You can definitely go too far down one end of that, that, you know, quote unquote play uh, pendulum and, you know, everything is a game and you kind of lose a little bit of that structure that 
um, I guess the athletes are coming to you for. Um, but there needs to be that element of play or that element of engagement where it's not so strict. It isn't so drill sergeant because if they are 13 or 14, think about how many years ahead, more ahead of structured training they're going to have. It's so, so, so many, probably double what the, the, the years are. So you don't want to burn the candle too quickly by, you know, jumping through all these um, progressions to get to lifting heavy weights or doing all these perfect movements when you can really build a massive foundation. I think that's where play can slow down a little bit of that um, quick forward progression. Um, so even simple as a, a great example is this is one of the athletes here, whilst I guess our environment doesn't allow a massive amount of play, we can probably incorporate a little bit in our first 15 minutes of our session, just with the, the athletes and the session flow, it's just not possible to be having, you know, um, whether that be ball games and things like that um, with our athletes, you know, things like whether you're doing planks and you bounce the ball, it's a really great way for obviously trunk control, st shoulder stability, but you have that little bit of element of, okay, it's a little bit, bit novel, bit of a novel stimulus. We just have an athlete do their A1, which let's say it's a dumbbell goblet squat into their A2, which let's say maybe a trunk movement, like I said, say a side plank. And then their A3 was a minute. You've got to get as many basketball shots into the hoop as you can and you record your score. So like, see how like one element of that would be, you know, a little bit more specific to, I guess, like movement and play would be say that the, the plank with the bouncing, the tennis ball, but in the environment with 20 athletes going around and you've got multitude of ages and med balls and heavy squats and whatever it may be, it's probably not the best idea, but just shooting the basketball in the corner still gets that little bit of a ticker box. And then, okay, cool. You've had your minute. Let's go back into your two, your two key things. And then we can go back to the shooting the basketball. Mm. Um, so it's really just finding ways that you can incorporate it. Um, so what's the, the rationale behind play? Like, so one, is it around engagement? So more of a, a psychological um, piece to draw the interest of the young person in? Um, two, is it around skill acquisition? Like there's some really interesting research around um, how play might facilitate some variability around skill acquisition or, or, or you know three another reason that you use play like is it what does it vary i'm just just curious as to what how play shows up and what it's for Mate, i probably probably falls bang in the bang in the middle of what you were saying there before athlete engagement's a really really big one um you've got athletes that at that age really struggle you know, they've gone through school all day. The last thing they want to do is have more structure of being told what to do. It provides just a little bit of autonomy. They feel like that they, it's it's just a little bit of chaos in their day that they they can not be told what to do. There, there's element of variability to it. So there's a form of decision-making. Um, I find that even the kids that don't come in really pumped and really excited to be there, if you do have some form of, of yeah, play, if we, we're sticking to that sort of terminology, they start to buy into a little bit more. You start to crack a smile. They start to open up a little bit, which then actually the rest of the session is far better off. So you might lose lose 10 minutes at the start of the session by playing a few games or or doing some some things that you know you, other people may look at and go, I don't really know what that's for, but it actually increases the effectiveness on the back end of the session. And then, yeah, from a skill acquisition standpoint, I think it's really up to your own imagination, right? And in, in how you incorporate those elements. I think if we look at, if we take and steal from other areas as, as all good coaches should do, but give credit looking at gymnastics, I think there's so many great things you can take from, from that side of things, from little athletics, um, all these different things that you can take and incorporate and it can still fit within your structure as well. Um, tennis ball games, tennis ball balance. They're some of the things that I think anyone can use and incorporate because really it's what you're already doing but adding a slight bit of variability with a ball 
and anyone can grab a tennis ball, you know, from the shop. So I think, yeah, it probably falls in the middle of what you were saying or, or the ideas you were saying there is, is pretty much bang on. Are there any other specific principles that you talk to your coaches about when it comes to your 13 to 17 year olds that may be different to your older athletes or your pro athletes that are coming in with a bigger training history, um, likely a bit of experience in the gym, but not always, um, you know, like, are there any other unique principles that, that only apply to the young athlete? Probably two come to mind is probably that load management piece, understanding where that training piece in the gym fits in their weekly schedule. Um, and, and being open and communicating with, with parents. And as I sort of mentioned there before, any relevant stakeholders as well in, in trying to have the best outcome for that athlete. Um, that is probably one of the hardest things. It's almost taking away, <laughs> not, not adding to it. And sometimes that may feel counterintuitive because the best thing for that particular athlete this week may only be one gym session. So you actually just have to be confident enough to say, look, there's been a massive spike in load with X, Y, Y, and Z. I think just one gym session this week is enough to be able to facilitate what we need to. But then next week we go back to two, you know, and, and they're hard conversations to have, but it's more so just understanding the bigger picture than just what happens in the gym. That's probably part one. And then part two, we look to lateralize movements a bit more than aim for a straight progression. So what I mean by that is, is let's say a nice easy one that I like to think of is a step up. So rather than going from say a dumbbell step up into say a barbell step up is how can we make that step up a little bit more complex, a little bit more challenging without having to add more load or take it further up that progression chain. So it could simply be as they step up, they come into an A-frame. So now we're adding a, an element of, of stability and control to it. That may require them to drop the load a little bit, but they feel like they're progressing. It ticks a box for us in the fact, okay, our movement literacy is growing, but we're not necessarily adding load. It could be a reverse lunge into the step-up position. So we're adding a little bit more complexity to it there. Little things like that around lateralization is, is pretty key. Um, and again, from a coaching standpoint, it's kind of fun because it might, may not be something that you would give a senior athlete, but it's something you may give a, a youth athlete. And the ability to um, trial and test things on kids is a little bit more um, not okay as such. Like you're not trying to give someone anything that's unsafe, but you have a little bit more, uh, I guess, ability to be able to facilitate that. And sometimes what, what the athletes, you give them and you go, oh, that might not be that good. They respond to it really, really well. And it may set them up better for the next thing you have down the line. So the ability to be able to experiment a little bit more with the youth athlete um, can be can be fun. And I think they enjoy that element as well, that they look over and they're doing something similar to a, a senior athlete, but it's slightly different, but they know that, you know, eventually they'll get to it. Yeah, the idea of novelty shows up in my world a lot. Mm. Uh, and I think, I think that comes back to your point of these kids are coming from so much structure, be it at school, albeit in their sports trainings that you throw some novelty at them in the gym and, and they absolutely dig it, you know, like something that they really get to, to explore. Have you, have you learned um, from working with your younger athletes that you then take into your senior athletes? Like, is that, is that a bit of a playground for you as a coach that to figure out what might really be valuable to, to then use with a, a more senior athlete that 
you're potentially a little bit a little bit more careful with because of uh, where they're at in their career or their development. Adults are just big kids, so everything you do with <laughs> with kids, you can pretty much apply to to you know your senior athletes in in whatever you want to call them. But some of those, if we go back to that element of play, they're great ways to facilitate you know traditional warm ups or or those basic prep options that some of the senior athletes may get a bit bored of because they have to go through it all the time and do the same things all the time. So they can facilitate that really well. The other thing too, that I think that kids bring that we don't often speak enough about is they bring energy. And when they bring energy, you want to match their energy. Um, so very rarely you know, when I'm coaching kids, do I ever walk down into the gym floor and be like, ah, oh, it's, you kind of walk in and you, you perk yourself up a fair bit. And I think that's something that you, want to try to replicate with those older athletes as well is, you know, how can we facilitate energy? You know, what, what was the thing when you were a kid that made you bounce around a little bit? And, you know, typically it just comes down to really having that, that good, strong relationship with them to be able to talk about those sorts of things that aren't about sport or about anything else. And I think that's what kids facilitate a lot when you're having conversations, they just talk about games. They talk about this, they talk about that. It's nothing too serious. So the ability to be able to have not too serious conversations with, your senior and older athletes is, is really good because it does bring energy and it does raise the mood a little bit. But then obviously the flip side of that is you want to be a coach that can have a serious conversation to an athlete if you need to. Uh, but there are a couple of things that sort of come to mind. Is there anything that you've changed your mind about uh, that not necessarily kids have brought into existence, but you know, over the last few years of coaching that you, know, you used to think about doing one way or, uh, and now you think differently? Probably um, to some extent around some of the structure as well, um, you know, prep options and and especially on the field, um, those options not being as rigid, you know, you don't have to go through A to B to C to get to D, you know, you can go A, D, B, C, it doesn't really matter what order it's in, um, bit of less, yeah, less rigid in the program, a little bit more flexibility. And I think that's some of the the ways that the the youth athletes programs are designed is there is a little bit more freedom um, and to be able to take those concepts or that idea and apply that to some of the senior athletes as well is really good. And I think that at the end of the day comes down to your experience as a coach to be able to, be able to plug and play your ability to be able to pull from your exercise library that's in your head, be able to drop that in, um, be able to read the room as well. You know, if, if um, an athlete isn't, feeling it that day what can you do to maybe either perk them up you know that make them feel it or what can you do to be able to pull them back a little bit and, and change their program to make it be a little bit easier for them or or make it match their their level of where they're at on that particular day um they're probably some some key things one of the things that i've changed significantly um working with kids over the last decade or so it was you know when i started going in with adults it was the program tended to have to cover you know, all the areas of that physical development piece, um, you know, two or three times a week. And, and you, were, you were kind of, you were looking to target all of those different areas in every program. But now with kids, I might spend the entire session on working through some tibial internal rotation, for example, and exploring that particular element in, in 15 or 20 different ways um, through play, through practice. And so... Um, how do you how do you periodize your programs with your kids over time? Um, you mentioned that you you're looking at drawing it out and you're a little bit more relaxed around progression. But do you stick to a specific periodization? 
um, in general? The environment that we are in probably facilitates one one way or, or one key way of programming to be able to make it work within our system. Um, now, this is not saying this is the right way to do it, it's just the way that it is done within our system. So we, we essentially run a five-week rotation or a five-week block with our programming and our youth athletes fall within that. Um, so, you know, um, the, the five phases of, or the five different weeks in that program, essentially uh, accumulation, intensification one, intensification two, you know, your typical standardized programming um, principles, right? The, the kids or the youth athletes may not fall directly into, you know, it's intensification two, so we're going to go after a PB today. That's not really what, what we mean by that, but they still have to fall within that system to make that flow of the, I guess, the, the entire session work. Um, so we do go through some key physical characteristics or f- uh, key physical traits we try to tick off each session so that we have our youth athletes and our senior athletes working together and we don't have this sort of chaotic gym floor. So each session or each program, there will be some form of velocity application. Um, now that's, you know, whether that be whatever plane of motion that is, whether that's force absorption or whether we're producing force, we have an element of that. We have an element of, um, I guess one key movement that we're looking at. And typically that's going to be a lower body movement, whether that's a, a knee dom or a hip dom. And then we have, I guess, off the back of that, our accessories or or what we deem is going to be appropriate for that, for that athlete. Typically it's a lot going to be around about trunk control, pelvic stability, those sorts of key areas that you, you the common threads that you, you typically see. Um, but again, that's where that individualization component comes into. It's not nowhere near as rigid as a, a senior program, but it still needs to fit within that system and environment. Yeah, nice. No, it makes sense. I think context is key when it comes to programming. And I, I mean, I came out of a, a program where we we had group training and, and the way we did that needed to be quite different to now where it's much more individualized. To take you out of context just for a minute as a thought experiment, would you change anything if you were if you just were working with a smaller amount of athletes and had the liberty to to free things up a little bit? Yeah, it's a great question. Back home, I, I did have the liberty of that, and it was probably a little bit more um, like pick your poison was kind of the, the theme that I sort of had to it. So it or choose your own adventures probably a, a bit of a nicer way to put it. So you know we would have there would be some key things that I would want to get done or tick a box. But it was kind of you can pick the way that you want to do it. So, for example, we would have an element of, of play at the start. So a little bit of fun, some games that we try to build over the course of, you know, five or six weeks. So it was something similar that there was a bit of, bit of um, understanding and they sort of knew what was going to happen. Some general prep work, which tend to roll quite nice off the back of that, which was a little bit more targeted, individualized. But again, typically it's all the same sort of stuff, hips, lower back, um, you know, things from sitting down at school too long. And then from there, it would be, um, you know, it would be, let's say it was a lower body lift and it was a knee dom. It was, you've got three options. Pick what one you want to do today. I don't mind. Because at the end of the day, we're, we're really greasing the movement pattern. It's not so much about how we get there. It's you you pick what you want to do, you know, and they might have a, the option to go a goblet squat. They might have the option to go um, a front squat, uh, double kettlebell front squat, whatever it may be, but they had the option there to pick it. And then it was just simply within Team Builder, you know, just pick that and then go from there. And then off the back of that, they had their um, specific, um, I guess, accessory exercise they needed to do. And I quite like that because, again, it drove some autonomy. But the coolest thing about that was when we had that, I had that program going for 
probably about eight to 12 months when the new athletes came into the program, the older, not the older ones, but the ones that have been there longer, even though they might be younger, could still teach those other kids how to move and what to do. And I thought that was really cool because now you're not telling them what to do. They have that element of self-control, but now they can teach it. So to me, that shows they really understand it and they've learned it. And now I'm not just teaching them how to get stronger. I'm teaching them how to move for life or, or for a longer period of time. And I think that that was a really cool moment seeing those kids teach other kids how to move, um, you know, or complex terminology, you know, like kettlebell front squat, you know, with a tempo or a pause. And they knew exactly how to explain that to another kid that's 11 or 12 or 13. You know, you don't often get that. And I think that, that's pretty cool um, when you see that in action. Super cool. Yeah. That's a, that's a fundamental principle of learning that I just love. And if you can facilitate it, uh, it's, it's going to be really, really magical. Going back to load, how do you manage that? I mean, that, it, it's really one of the hardest things that, that we, that comes onto our plate as, as, you know, practitioners working with kids. So do you use a system that monitors load? Is it cut through conversation? Like how do you manage the load that the kids are coming to you with? Yeah, it's, it's the biggest gray area, um, unfortunately, we, we have <laughs> to deal with. We are lucky enough to have Lumen Sports. Um, Lumen's just an AMS software, which is super helpful. Um, it has helped flagged. Um, what what that does, an AMS software is great. If you've got a large volume of people you're, you're looking after, but all an AMS software does is just flag and then you start the conversation. Like AMS software is not going to tell you that you're about to break. I think that's where a lot of people may get confused on it, that if you get this, it's going to prevent injuries or or highlight them just before it happens. It's, all that really does is a, is, a, is a way for you to start a conversation that you may not have going to start for whatever reason. So that's been very helpful for a lot of our coaches is an athlete flags they might have, it's, let's say, a, a, a sore lower back in the youth context is actually probably more relevant. A sore lower back, cool you know, jump on the, on the phone to the parent, you know, what's going on with, with Johnny's back. Oh, it's, it's starting to flare up a little bit after doing some running and, and things like that. Cool. I think the best action there is let's get him into the physio, um, which again, I know not everyone has that luxury to be able to say, just pop into the physio, but let's arrange that with someone that we work with in allied health. Let's get, and let's get them and get a hands-on assessment, bring them in and okay, look, starting to potentially look like some stress related response. You know, why could that have happened? Oh, he's had an extra four sessions this past month that we didn't account for for whatever reason okay perfect this makes a lot of sense the physio now comes in so you've got another extra person in the conversation how do we how do we make this the best possible outcome for the athlete we may have to reduce some strength training we may have to include some strength training whatever it may be we have to increase on field decrease on field but at absolute worst we flag a conversation at absolute best we can actually minimize potentially the downside of a serious injury um, and I think if you work with youth athletes, unfortunately, they just pop up sometimes stress-related um, responses, um, you know, those growing pains, some tendonitis-related issues. They're just some things that sometimes no matter how many boxes you've ticked and your eyes you think you've crossed and T's you've um, dotted, that's obviously a pun, um, you sometimes just, you just miss it, unfortunately. And it just helps facilitate that conversation. Um but I, I, the biggest thing that I've found is having the parent on board um, and that can be done through multiple ways, whether that's a weekly conversation, um, whether that's an email correspondence where they plan out the week ahead. Um, it really works on the type of parent you're dealing with. And I think sometimes that's the other part. 
you you just got to have to deal with that. While you might have a system, it may work really well for 90% and you still got the 10% that you still got to worry about and chase up. What I've done in the past is I like to send a weekly weekly feedback. So I'm actually showing the parent that what they're telling me I'm implementing into their child's program or, or their physical development, which shows that I'm listening. So it's not just a waste of time for them to spend 15 or 20 minutes on an email each Sunday or Monday to get that information through. And then have a list of set questions around you know, what's Johnny's schedule for the upcoming week? How many training sessions is he doing? Um, what's the estimate duration of these training sessions? You know, things like that, that sometimes you don't need to ask, but it's sometimes better to ask anyway, to have that on on record, on a file, even just to jog your memory. Um, and that's worked really, really, really well to get that buy-in. And again, sometimes you are a bad, the bad person. You know, you, Johnny, I really think the next two weeks, we we might have to pull back on on something. But if you go way back to the start of the conversation that we had and around building that trust from the athlete and the parent, if you can get that from day one, when a, a tough or difficult conversation pops up, you're in a far better position to, um, I guess, control that conversation to an extent, but also to have them respond to you in a positive manner and understand that you do have their best interest at heart and you're not just a, you know, trying to tell them to stop playing sport. Because when you're 14 or 15, and you've got a big game coming up or even just some club, depending on the athlete, if you've got that, that person that takes it like it's game day in NRL, that's heartbreaking for them. So you've got to understand, you know, to tell them that they can't do what they love or what they want to do is it's, it's big news for them. So you've got to be able to, yeah, find the best way to deliver that. But if you have all those um, ducks lined up, it makes that conversation far easier. Yeah, I love it. We did some research uh, a little while ago that showed 73% of youth athletes are hiding pain uh, which was pretty concerning when when we did that research and I think systems like this are crucial if nothing else just to provide information so that these young athletes don't feel stuck um, and there there are ways that they can get themselves out of um, something that they know is a challenge to deal with yeah and I think like 73 percent doesn't surprise me really at all unfortunately it's because they think about the worst case scenario um, because they're probably just not educated enough and and nor nor should they like I, I remember when I was 14 I wouldn't have a clue about you know anything like this but um definitely when I was 15 16 I had debilitating patellar tendonitis pain like I couldn't lunge in a warm up like it would literally feel like steak knives going into me but I wasn't going to tell anyone because the moment that I can't train I get pulled out that means I'm not going to be able to potentially not play on the weekend um so yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me, but I guess the earlier that we can expose them to environments like, you know, like this, like you, like all the other great coaches out there, um, that they can educate them that, you know, this actually, it's, it's okay to be in pain. Let's try to work you out of that. And it doesn't mean that we have to stop anything or, or pull anything out. We might just have to add a little bit of something in um, as, a, as a bit of a preventative or a bit of a starting point and then go off the back of that. Yeah, it sounds to me like you've got lots of threads to your offer, which is awesome. And I'm curious when we were, when I was running the program over here in Auckland, uh, we found that it was actually a real challenge to get the kids to come to our program that were playing in the big sports at the big schools. Um, you know, the first 15 athletes, the first 11 athletes, uh, because a lot of schools now offer um, opportunity to do some SNC uh, on site, and logistically, it makes sense. And the brotherhood of all of the boys, etc., cetera, uh, the sisterhood doing the training together in a spot that makes it easy to do so. 
So do you see a particular type of athlete coming to you? Like, uh, is it more the minority sports that aren't necessarily well supported? Or, or are you getting the, the rugby league athletes, the football athletes, uh, you know, coming to see you as well? It's probably a combination of the two. Um, and I think too, it's important to note that the school programs around the country are improving drastically. Uh, and continuing to grow and, and be really great. And that some of the coaches that they're getting in there to facilitate those programs, it's great that a kid doesn't have to worry about going to another place to get there, get quality coaching and training in. They can just go to school. They can train in the morning, you know, go through their schoolwork and then train in the evenings. and have to worry about being in 15 different places at once. And I think from a logistics standpoint, that can sometimes be just the 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 golden bullet or the silver bullet, sorry, is that sometimes that the logistics wise, whilst they know that this could be the best thing for them. They simply just can't get there with all the other things they have to juggle. And that's one of the the tough points. Again, dealing with the youth athlete versus the older athlete is they can drive themselves there. Yeah, it might take them 30 minutes, but they can still get themselves there. Kids, they can't get themselves there. So you really do ultimately rely back onto the the parent again, um, which is unique in itself, right, in that environment. Um, but going back to your, your, your question, um, yeah, probably a combination of the two. The, the minority sports, you know, definitely... I think will always be a strong uh, point for the private strength conditioning space from a resource standpoint. Uh, unfortunately, they don't get the same sort of, I guess, budget allocations and staffing as some of the bigger programs do. Um, so for them to feel like that they're getting some attention like those bigger sports and programs is really useful and really positive for them. But the same deal with some of the, uh, I guess the bigger programs as well is uh Parents and athletes sometimes want to feel like they're being individualized or they're getting their specific needs heard. And I know sometimes in those bigger programs, it, it is quite difficult for a coach to be able to facilitate that if they've got 30 or 40 athletes in there and they're all doing the same thing because you know they might look at someone on social media and go, well, I know LeBron has his own trainer, but he's still in the Lakers. So I want my own LeBron's trainer. Where can I get that? Well, maybe I go on and seek that out somewhere. Um, so you kind of get both ends of it. And I think it is important. Uh, there's probably two parts of me, me being the knowing how good it was to train in a team environment. It's really useful to be around. Like you mentioned, your teammates, where you're building camaraderie, getting around the boys as they lift heavy. It's just another, another way to build culture and, and build your team to make it really, really strong. And there's also that other part of me as well that knows that that may not be the best thing for me. Um, so where can I get some extra knowledge or, 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 um, what I actually like to call it with some of the parents that when they've got their kids in, in those other programs is where can we fill the gaps? So we get in touch with the the school programs and 99% of them are unreal. And that's credit to them that they're willing enough to, to share and be open with their program. They send the program through every time they update it, um, you know, whether that be monthly or, or whatever it may be. And we look at that and go, okay, well, what are the gaps that we need? We can fill, you know, okay, well, they're getting a lot of posterior chain load, um, you know, um, some good distal hamstring, some good solid knee strength, but they're not getting up any calf or lower shank. Cool. Can we somehow articulate a program that can incorporate some of the things they're missing um, and just make that program even better? So we're not trying to take away from um, Johnny's uh, program outside or his representative program, whatever it may be. We're just trying to fill in the gaps and add to it. And that's been a really good conversation piece for me dealing with parents when they say, you know, Johnny's now in this program, in this program, we don't know whether we can continue with your service or what can you do to be able to still make it worthwhile is that's great. We want them to lead the program because they are the ones ultimately that have 
the the most contact hours. They get to see him on a day to day basis. We might get to see him, you know, twice or three times a week. Let us fill the gaps. Let them take control, um, and we'll we'll sort of take care of it from that. And moving forward from from your point of view, is that the is is that the opportunity um, being in the private sector? It's to continue to identify and then and fill the gaps. And and do you see that changing? Like, have you have, have you seen a change in in what you offer over the last two to three years? And do you see that continuing? Yeah, I think fill the gaps can mean a bit, right? Like filling the gaps in regards to physical with their programming, um, filling their gaps in regards to their recovery. You know, again, we're lucky enough to have ice baths, uh, hot tubs, you know, your Normatec compression. Uh, massage guns, all those little things that um, add up and add to an athlete's experience. You know, so if they are juggling big load, how can we add value or continue to add value? Hey, let's come in and do a targeted recovery session. So we're still getting those contacts, which may not be in the gym or on the gym floor. Um, same deal again, we we have certain offerings around. I know you mentioned it before that you've sort of gone down the route of mental skills. We have mental skills coach that they can come in and have access to um, in some group presentations and things like that. What other things can we add that creates the connects the dots to what is an athlete, not just the physical component. Um, and I think that's probably where it'll keep going down that route of filling the gaps, not only physically, but what other elements can we add value to an athlete's experience? Because those school programs are and club programs are just going to keep getting better and better and better because they're going to get more resources. They're going to get better coaches um, that continue to go into them. So rather than maybe throw your hands up in the air and get frustrated with that or, or whatever it may be is what opportunities do we have that we can find? Um, and I just like that, that idea and that mentality of fill the gaps because it means you're actively looking for opportunity versus looking on the opposite side saying, well, my meat and potatoes are taken, so I've got no dinner. It's like, no, well, there's still plenty of stuff you can still work on. Jordy, we're drawing to a close slowly, but I, I just wanted to touch on coach development. And I know you guys do some really good work around courses and, and workshops for coach development. Do you have a specific element of that experience that digs into the youth athlete? And and you know the specific principles and criterias that we need to think about if we are going to be working with 13, 14, 15 year olds, because it, definitely in my experience over the last five to 10 years is, is it's been an explosion in that particular stage of development in terms of what's offered. Um, and, and I think we're still a long way behind in terms of the education and the understanding to be coaching kids. And so do you, do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, we're lucky enough that, um, or not we're lucky enough, in our coach immersion program, um, one of the modules in that is uh, long-term athlete development considerations at about a two-hour um, presentation. And that's the one that I, I actually run that one. Previously, we were lucky enough to have um, Nathan Parnham work with us as a staffing group. And he provided a lot of good upskill to our two um, head of youth coaches. So in Sydney, we've got one called Denzel. And then in Melbourne, our head of youth is Matt Dooley. So those two guys really facilitate a lot of the youth programs. So they're what were his main point of contacts. And they got a lot of value out of dealing with someone like Nathan, who's he's really made a mark in that youth space. He's been a part of multiple different programs so he can pull on different experiences. And I think that's pretty important if you are looking for upskill in the youth space is who's been there and who's done it, but who also has different experiences not just being in the school setting or not just being in the private setting or not just being in the academic setting you know the more 
uh, strings to their bow or the more areas they've worked in, I guess the more holistic their view and their opinion may be. In saying that, though, it doesn't mean that you can't reach out to someone just because they've worked in the school setting. You just may get a bit more of a narrower focus on on what you're trying to get out of or what they're trying to say to you. So I've always been a big believer in if you see someone that you respect and, and love their work, reach out to them and try to get in contact with them in any way you can. I'm a person, I like to just meet people and just observe. I'm just a watcher. Um, that's how I learn the best. I don't learn very good from sitting down and reading journal articles and things like that. I just am an observer. Um, so A, knowing your strengths and weaknesses as well and how you learn. Um, but yeah, B, finding people around you or people that you look up to that that have been or or done or doing similar things to you or things that you would like to do in the future and, and learn from them um, is always a, a nice touch, I think. Yeah. So in what are the areas for you personally uh, that you're spending time investing into at the minute around your development? Sometimes that's easy, easily forgotten, and I'm sure there's plenty on your plate. Um, but have you identified, do you have a process for uh, reflection around how you can continuously learn and get better? Yeah. It's So in the last four months or so, I've actually transitioned from a lot of not doing a whole lot of coaching and really doing a lot of the media and the business side of things in regards to some of our partnerships. Right. And it's quite ironic. It's always when you're not doing something, you want to do more of it. So I've actually done probably more upskill in the past four months um, than what I had done in the previous 12 um, because I'm just not doing it every day and you miss it, but you want to keep your finger on the pulse and you want to know that, you know, for whatever reason, if you get called out to do something, you, you're onto it and you know what, what's going on. The areas I've really dove down probably the last, you know, four months or so, but even a little bit longer than that is, is really diving down the speed side of things. Um, I think, again, if we're talking about filling the gaps, another great area of opportunity for coaches to um, cement themselves as maybe a bit of a, a, a point of difference from a, from the the coach. I think we're all so confident in the gym. Like everyone, you know, you say, you know, how confident are you in, in writing a, a gym program? Most people throw their hand up straight away. You say a speed program might drop down a little bit. You say a conditioning program might drop down even more. So I was in a room and I was listening to someone say that and I was like, yep, I definitely wouldn't throw my hand up with the same conviction that I would for a strength program. So the speed side of things and you look at um, how much influence speed has in in performance and athlete development, pff, undeniable speed can can be an absolute game changer so understanding that is really important and then um trying to also learn and understand things that may challenge me so when you talk about speed you know there's some people that will really love franz bosch's work and there are people that will be really against franz bosch's work i think somewhere in the middle is probably the right answer so i've been reading a lot of franz's work again as i said to you whilst reading is probably not my best thing i watch a lot of lectures and a lot of videos and then that helps me go back and read it to understand it a little bit more. So um, speed training in general, linear speed training, and then a lot of Bosch-based stuff is sort of where I've been focusing on. And I feel like, yeah, coming back to, yeah, filling the gaps, it, it continues to build out a, a more of a well-rounded coach versus diving down more that, I guess, traditional um, strength training, plyometric-based um, upskill, which I've done a lot of. And I feel confident in doing that. So it's easy to go back and keep doing that sort of upskill. Because, you, you know, you feel like, okay, if you read something, you can have a, an educated, really educated answer and opinion on that versus sometimes when you're reading things or learning new things that challenge you, you go, oh, I don't really know what the best way to answer that would be. And sometimes that's a bit of an ego hit. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of where I've been focusing a little bit. Yeah, and those marginal gains are uh, just interesting to weigh up compared to opening up a can of something completely new, aren't they? It's always a bit of a challenge when you're thinking about 
your PT is where to spend your time. Like just in terms of speed, uh, you know, what are your uh, big boulders when it comes to your young athletes? Like where do you start and, and what do you think you get the, the biggest return on investment with? Yeah, I think the the thing that I'm looking at, um, and we recently just did a presentation here, a two day, oh, sorry, a one day, my apologies, with uh, about 16 coaches that came from around Australia, which was unreal, which was uh, Brendan Hoyer, who's our resident speed coach and myself. And what I presented on was the transfer between maximizing transfer between the weight room and the field. And I think with kids and with older athletes, but specifically kids, if we can get our terminology right at an early age, so that common language and common understanding around positioning, um, placement, feeling, you know, the feeling of moving fast, the feeling of moving slow, the feeling of being heavy, the feeling of being reactive, that common language and that feeling element, if we can get them to do that in the gym or, or have elements of that in the gym, and then when we go out into the field, it's not information overload. We're not installing a completely new software in their head. We're just adding to what they're, what we've already uh, spoken about and what we're already built upon. Um, so I think that's an in- interesting route that I would like to continue to explore is that common language, common feeling um, side of it and how we can continue to make that easier and simpler uh, or more simple, not simpler, uh, in that transition to the field. Um, because even for the common, sorry, the average American, I know this is American or Australia, but the average American reads at a sixth grade level, Right. And so I, when I heard that, I was like, wow, that's mind boggling because especially in our field, we love to use big words and we love to articulate ourselves or, or position ourselves that we really know what we're talking about. But when other people have no bloody idea what we're speaking about, then why even bother? Why even bother trying to be technical? Keep it to its most basic form um, or the most basic way you can get the message across. And it is going to be far more effective. There's a, an, an, a prime example of this, which was a massive red face moment even a couple of weeks ago, I'm working with a, with a rugby league player who's played at highest level. And I was talking about his projection in acceleration and he kept looking at me. And this is probably about three weeks of me saying the word projection. And he kept looking at me and it, it finally clicked. And I was like, um, do you know what I'm talking about when I say projection? He's like, I got no fucking idea. <laughs> I got no idea what you're talking about. And I was like, I, I could tell. And like, that's a professional athlete who would have heard that a million times, by the way. Me saying that, trying to expect it, and I'm like, why isn't he getting it? Why isn't he getting it? Just didn't understand it. And so, yeah, things like that just still to this day are, are good things that you go, ah, that's a good reminder. Yeah, absolutely. And that words are words are powerful. They are how we communicate. And and if we don't have a shared language and if, or if we don't use the right analogies or the right cues, then we're, um, what is it? I think there was some nice research around feedback that was quite clear in the fact that um, feedback is is the difference between what is said and what is heard is mm. not always the same so it's um it's important as coaches that we we understand what's being heard we we had brett bartholomew come out in february and just one of the key takeaways from his workshop and i mentioned this a few times is if you want better answers ask better questions and that's really stuck with me in in in, in everything in every aspect of 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 what i do professionally and personally if you want you know, someone to do something or you want to understand something better, ask better questions and you will get a better answer. And that that's really just stuck with me. I think that's sort of it's a nail on the head with that. Yeah, it is. And it? like the power of questions and coaching and being able just to take a moment and ask a question as opposed to give an instruction is, mm. 
is super powerful sometimes. Jordy, thanks so much for opening up and, and sharing your program and, and how you think about coaching and in particular working with kids. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's been really fun to hang out and, and get to know you and your program a little bit better. Uh, any of our listeners over the ditch in Aussie if they, or anywhere around the world, and for that matter, if they want to reach out, Jordy, how's the best way they can go about doing that? Just Instagram is the best way to do it. So just coach underscore Jordy Taylor. Um, and then, yeah, please, please, uh, any feedback, positive, negative, anything in between, I'm always open to, to chat and discuss. Uh, I really appreciate anyone's feedback. And um, thank you very much, mate, for for having me and, and having a great chat. And it was great to learn more about what you do um, before jumping on. And hopefully, mate, we can um, hang out one day soon, whether that's in New Zealand or over here. Yeah, absolutely, mate. I'd love to get over over to Aussie and uh, come and say hi sometime. So kia ora. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, mate. Really appreciate it. <laughs>